Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts as you open our hearts to your word, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, thank you, uh, Will, for your invitation to be here. I didn't know it would be such a significant day in your experience, uh, but God works all things for good, my brother. Uh, I want to thank the bishop uh, as well, because as a bishop in the church, I need to seek permission from Bishop Graham to be here, and so I'm very appreciative of his uh, invitation as well. I don't think I can rival the children's talk. Sometimes things happen that we find hard to believe. I remember a time when I was much younger and our tennis team went through an entire season without winning a match until the very last Saturday when we won comprehensively. The reaction of players, friends and family was stunned disbelief. The next season was even harder to believe. The team was more appropriately graded and we didn't lose a match. This sudden reversal from loser to winner was equally hard to comprehend. <clears throat> Perhaps you might have had a similar experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. It might have been an exam you sat but felt you handled badly and expected to fail and yet surprisingly passed with flying colours. It might have been an affair of the heart when you rang someone in fear and trepidation and they accepted your invitation out. Or alternatively, you were approached by someone whom you never thought might be interested in you. Sometimes things happen in a range of human experiences which we find hard to believe or understand. In our reading this morning uh, from Isaiah, God speaks something which the original hearers found really hard to believe. It caused amazement and astonishment. It was about a great reversal about a victory no one expected. It made some sense of the present difficulties of the people of God in exile in Babylon some six centuries before Christ. The prophet has been proclaiming since chapter 40 that their sufferings are over, that they are on the verge of being delivered by, released by God's deliverer. In this song, he explains how this came about. As you might know, this is one of the so-called servant songs found in Isaiah 40 to 55, which reflect on God's purpose for his servant. In the original context, there is a sense in which Israel, or rather the faithful remnant, is his servant. So he says in chapter 49, verse 3. And yet Isaiah is also referring beyond the immediate to a real person in the future, who will be God's final answer to human weakness and failure. He's referring ultimately to someone who embodies all that the nation of Israel was called to be and yet failed to do. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 is a magnificent poem which stresses at least four things about this servant or this true Israel figure, if I can put it that way. It starts with his destiny. The opening stanza begins on page 740 with a summary statement in which God speaks in the first person. He announces that his servant will have great success in his mission. He says he will act wisely, meaning he knows exactly what to do, 
to bring about the intended result to dramatically reverse his status, whereby he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He will be completely successful and victorious. He will achieve what he proposes, namely to be with God where he is. The dramatic nature of the reversal is developed in the first two verses. In the first place, no one dreamed it would be even possible. His appearance was ghastly. A grievous suffering had uh, completely disfigured him. And we all know what it's like to instinctively react when we see a face permanently disfigured by horrible injury, perhaps a fire or an explosion. But this servant's wounds and stripes were beyond the worst that have ever been or seen or even imagined, verse 14. Yet in spite of this, verse 15, he will silence the leaders of the nations. In fact, things they have not been told or even heard will become plain through him. He's actually pictured in the text as a priest, sprinkling the unclean to make them fit to be in the presence of God. And the prophet says that in many far distant places and exalted social circles, many will benefit and all will be astonished at the exhortation of this horribly disfigured servant of the Lord. It is completely without precedent that anything like this should happen. Despised people are seldom given any prominence. Yet this servant is to be raised, lifted up and highly exalted. And the prophet says, verse 53, uh, chapter 53, verse 1, who could believe it? Because in the next nine verses, as we sang in the song before the reading, the prophet details through witnesses the sufferings of this servant and begins to give reasons for them. He explains why his appearance is so disfigured and his form so marred. It is important to notice in verses 1 to 9 that the description encompasses his whole life from his early years to his violent death. And in between there is unrelieved suffering. We are told he was not a particularly strong person. The evocative phrase, like a root out of a dry ground. He seemed fairly insignificant and ordinary. He was not one of the beautiful people that people flock around. He was not the centre of the party. Not surprisingly, he knew what it was to be lonely. He also knew the subtle, hidden content, pain of contempt, lack of esteem and non-acceptance. In short, he was utterly despised. Regarded as a nobody, he was a rejected outcast without friends. It's not easy to believe that he was the saviour. And further, we read in verse 7 that he was oppressed and afflicted, suffering violence willingly, voluntarily, and silently at the hands of others. In fact, verse 8 uses legal and forensic language to suggest an unjust trial, a miscarriage of justice which resulted in sudden death. He was cut off from the land of the living. And even though innocent, verse 9, it was a shameful death with a shameful burial. It is unrelieved disgrace all his life that made him not only an attractive picture to look at, 
but someone to avoid and shun. And yet, do you notice that in these verses, his suffering and his death was entirely for others? The real purpose for his life is found in the words in verses 4 to 6, which lie at the heart of the poem, and which we sang before. Surely he took up our infirmities and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you put yourself back into the shoes of the ancient Near East, there was a widespread assumption that if a person had suffered so much that they were only getting what they deserved from the hand of God. The attitude was that sin earns punishment. Remember the book of Job. So great sin merits greater punishment. But this is not the case with the servant nor really with anyone else for that matter. It's not the case with the servant who deals with every aspect of our needs. The text says, as we sang, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now I'm sure you know in a church like uh, Holy Trinity that sacrificial substitution was enshrined in the law of Moses. So the suffering he chose to endure was for our benefit as our substitute to deal with our sin, our alienation from God, our broken personhood which needs to be transformed. Hence you'll notice in this song there is a public confession of universal guilt. There is an admission that we have strayed from our shepherd God like stupid sheep intent on doing our own thing. Yet surprisingly... God has placed our sins and the punishment that we deserve on his servant who without complaint endured what others really deserved. And so, it is the despised, suffering servant of the Lord who is to be raised, lifted up and highly exalted. And the prophet says, who could believe it? That brings me to the last section of the poem and to two other things which I want to draw you to your attention. The last section of the poem for verses 10 to 12 contains a report of the servant's deliverance and his post-death experience. It is once again declared by others before God has the final say. In the first place, the onlookers declare that even though the servant suffered in fulfilment of God's plan to crush him, and for his life to be a guilt offering, God never deserted him. In fact, they are convinced that God will make up for him what he lacked because, quote, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, which was a very traditional way of expressing Israelite hope. But in the second place, God promises his faithful suffering servant a portion with the greatest ones of the earth, verse 12. And the picture is that of a 
general of a great army after a victory passing out the booty to his strongest and most courageous warriors. The despised and lonely servant will be the rich conqueror. God will deliver his servant after his sin-bearing death and then his promised destiny will be fulfilled. Since he has been deprived of the good things in this life, he will receive them in, the abund- in abundance in the future as a reward for his faithfulness. And the prophet says, who could believe it? Who could believe it? And the fact that God delivered him, and this is the second point I want to make in this last uh, stanza, the fact that God delivered him is God's amen to his achievement. But what, because what does the entire song say he achieved by his life and his death and his suffering, his sufferings and his death? The song is replete with phrases which tell us about his work. Remember, we have heard he brought us peace by enduring punishment. He brought healing for someone else's wounds. He dealt with someone else's guilt. But it is the final words of God in this song which explain and sum it all up. Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Listen to this. And by his knowledge... My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He will justify many. Now I'm sure you know that uh, justify is a legal term. To be justified is to be acquitted. It is to be declared innocent and brought into a right relationship with God. And incredibly, it is the servant's job to make the guilty innocent. How can he do it? Well, the only way for a guilty person to escape punishment is if someone else pays the fine and extinguishes the sentence. Let me illustrate from the life of two Australian friends who shared a car. They were both returned missionaries and they lived together after their mission service. They received a camera speeding offence. I presume you have those in this country as well. There was a considerable and vigorous discussion about who was responsible and driving on the day and therefore who needed to incur the fine and the penalty points which go in our country. One was adamant that it could not have been her. So the other settled with the police. But on further reflection, it became obvious that the innocent one had been punished. But the guilty one had got off scot-free because one had taken the rap for the other. And that is what the servant of the Lord does. In the words of verse 11, he bears the iniquities of many. In the words of verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors so they no longer needed to be numbered. He makes atonement so that many will have peace with God. Who could believe it? 
a despised, suffering servant of the Lord, should bear the sins of many in his death and then be raised and highly exalted. Well, let me wrap this up. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who lived 600 years before Christ. (laughs) What a comforting word this must have been to the faithful remnant of the people of God in exile. People like Daniel. They are reassured that their sufferings were purposeful. That even though they were despised and rejected, through them many would be made righteous. Moreover, there is a promise that God would deliver and exalt them so that nations and kings could be startled. Yet, of course, this promise was never fully realised in their experience. Instead, because this servant figure in Isaiah 53 is also an idealised personification of the faithful remnant of Israel, it points forward to a final fulfilment in history with a future servant of the Lord who is, in the words of this text, sage, priest, sacrifice, sufferer, conqueror and intercessor and who is the channel of God's grace to sinners. The future servant, in the words of Mark 10.42, in the words of Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. So in the person and work of Jesus, these verses find their final and complete fulfilment. It was the French thinker Pascal who once said, prophecies are the greatest proof of Jesus Christ. If this is so, then Isaiah 53 must be the most convincing of all. Jesus was born in obscurity and poverty. He seemed very ordinary and insignificant, constantly experiencing unbelief and rejection. More than any other person, he was a man of sorrows, knowing the full depths of human suffering. He did no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was sinless. He was the victim of oppression and a miscarriage of justice, yet he did not retaliate. He was put to death, pierced and crucified, and then buried with the wicked in a rich man's tomb. In his death, he was numbered with the transgressors, executed as a common criminal, and by his sin-bearing death, he justified others by his shed blood. More than that, he prolonged his days by rising again, and he now sees his offspring, countless millions of disciples who have put their trust in him. And he has been supremely exalted to God's right hand. And as risen Lord, he has vanquished all the enemies. And all history marches inexorably to an end point when every knee will bow at his name. I'm just bringing out the New Testament delusions to the servant. It's no surprise that the New Testament bristles with quotes and allusions to this song which ten times makes the same point the New Testament makes about Jesus, who bore our sins as our substitute. And it will be a good exercise this week, in Holy Week, to go home and to read this passage through. And to paraphrase the whole passage, 
and read it aloud to yourself or to your forbearing spouse or whoever, replacing we, us and ours with the pronouns I, me or my, or your own name if you prefer. Instead of he or servant, say Jesus. Read it aloud this week. Jesus was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, I am healed. This is the mystery and the glory of the cross that we'll remember this Friday. Who could believe it? We are made right with God by what Jesus the servant has done. We escape the punishment our sins deserve because Jesus our substitute stood in for us. We are made whole by the dying and rising Jesus. So sisters and brothers, as we approach our Easter celebration, where do we stand personally in relationship to this incredible message which many in our culture Find, still find too hard to believe. Have we humbly admitted we are transgressors and that his sacrifice was for us? Have we experienced personally the incredible reversal from judgment to forgiveness, from brokenness to wholeness, from death to life that faith in Jesus our servant king brings? Will we in the light of this song and with the help of God's Spirit, humbly live our lives, praising, imitating, and proclaiming our servant King so that others might also believe his message of good news. Who could believe it? In the power of God, we do. In the name of God, amen.